Hello and welcome to Get Flush, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. I'm Pete. When I first sat down to plan season three, I had three primary goals. The first was to broaden the scope of the show so that I could talk about other aspects of sanitation as well as portable toilets. The second was to bring in guests who developed new and exciting products, pioneered a different approach to sanitation, or somehow challenged common perceptions and practices associated with the toilet industry. And the third was to showcase people and companies with an interest in sanitation, especially those from New Zealand, and share their stories with the world. If I look back at the episodes I've released so far this season, I'm pretty happy with the way things have gone. I met all three of my goals in my interview with Craig and the team at Exilu, and when I met Billy Joe from B-Day. Natalie's product, Madam P, provided an innovative solution for women, and Dave Andre's account of the restroom response at the World Trade Center after 9-11 was a sanitation story that really deserved to be told. I was really excited to meet this week's guest because he definitely meets all three of the goals for the show, and he brings together so many of the issues and themes that I've explored over the last year and a half. The interview came about because I met a lady called Michelle MacDonald, a fellow traveller who lives full-time in a tiny house on wheels. We parked next to Michelle earlier in the year, and when I got talking to her, she told me that her trailer was fitted with a New Zealand-made composting toilet called a bamboo loo. You'll hear the rest of that story a bit later in the episode, but it's fair to say it sparked my interest, and it's the reason why and how I met today's guest, Dylan Timney. Dylan is the energy behind a company called Waterless Composting Toilets NZ, which he founded in 2007, and he's the inventor of the bamboo loo I saw in Michelle's trailer. He's a real guru when it comes to alternative toilet solutions. I have to say, this is one of the most wide-ranging and thought-provoking interviews I've recorded for the show. Dylan talked about the bamboo loo, his experiences as an inventor and a business owner, the global supply chain, the push towards centralised sewer systems, biogas, the challenges of bespoke manufacturing, wastewater standards, and the power exerted by big business, philosophy, personality types, and learning styles. There's a huge amount packed into the next 50 minutes. I'll put the link in the notes for today's show, but if you want to check out the Bamboo Loo while you're listening, the web address is bambooloo.co.nz. That's B-A-M-B-O-O-L-O-O.co.nz. Dylan, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you, Pete? I'm excellent. Appreciate you taking your time out. I understand you're really busy. Uh, yeah, I tend to work weekends quite <laughs> often. It's kind of like the luxury space where in which you're not having to answer phone calls from customers, so you're able to sort of toil without bother, you know? You can get a lot done before anybody interrupts you. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, when, you, when you're running your own business, there's always this concept of you getting ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is never really the case, you know? <laughs> But you, you're compelled to do it because it's sort of, it's not so much that you're ahead, it's that you're alleviating the workload during the week. So by dealing with a few of these orders over the weekend, I'm able to attend to the phone calls more readily, you know, that sort of thing come Monday. Yeah, sure. Did you get closed down over COVID as well, over lockdown? Well, stretch the, the legal definition of what a essential service is, primarily because, you know, composting toilets may or may not require support products. Yeah. And being that it's quite often people's primary on-site sanitation, it's it's good that we can sort of operate and provide them with that sort of constant supply of whatever they need. Fast as an essential service then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Along with the potential that I think a proportion of people would suggest that it is an emergency toilet. Yeah. Or something along those lines, whatever their housing crisis is. Reading through your email and then following some of the links you put on your signature, I appreciate and I didn't appreciate originally, Bamboo Loo's part of a much more complicated and bigger structure, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the story. We'd been living in our caravan for a year. Yeah. I bumped into a lady in Timaru at the Firelap Racecourse and she had this yeah. huge behemoth of a tiny house on a trailer. Uh-huh. I got talking to her and she said, oh, I've got a composting toilet. And she showed me this bamboo loo, which I have to say was absolutely beautiful. It was dark and light bamboo wood and aesthetically a really pretty thing to look at. And with that, the whole of the top team from the NZMCA turned up and did a big inspection on a van. Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) They'd never seen such a thing in a mobile home or a, a tiny house on wheels. Wow, okay. 
it's also a generational issue because we've sort of very much forgotten historical toilets. Yeah. Kind of a part of the, the irony there. We've forgotten a lot and that happens generationally, you know. I believe essentially we know what we live with. Yeah. Dogmas or otherwise. So, yeah, there's a bit of that going on. Absolutely. And then as the podcast has grown over the past year, I've spread out from originally it was just about portable restroom operations, but I've broadened it. And my conversation with Chelsea Wold, who wrote the book Pipe Dreams last year, and my chat with Jack Sim from the World Toilet Organization was a real epiphany for me because for the first time I realized that actually portable toilets are a convenience for us, but for many people in the world, they're actually a necessity. It's their only option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the composting thing came up and I had a listener in Australia who messaged me and said, hey, Pete, did you know there's a guy on the Sunshine Coast who's using worms as his sewerage processing system? Right. And then having seen the bamboo loo with Michelle, I was really keen to explore this. And I didn't realize when I sent that email to you that bamboo loo is part of a bigger company, waterless composting toilets. Correct. Yeah. And lo and behold, the company's based in Auckland. Well, look, starting at the bamboo is really a conversation opener. In its own right, it's a bucket system. And I think the beauty of bucket systems is that that is the one-to-one ratio of composting toilets. It's it's the primary sort of system proposed, right? It's not a legally compliant system according to the standards we hold in Australia and New Zealand. But as far as like achieving a compost, it's an ideal starting point realistically for people. The Bambaloo itself as a product really took what was a sort of a simple concept and had a low aesthetic quality because our bucket systems were often DIY'd as a box. Pretty Heath Robinson. And then sort of brought it back into that market where it was aesthetically pleasing, but it also appealed to the uniqueness of the demographic who's particularly after these sorts of lifestyles, if it could be said that it's a particular lifestyle, because it's not always that for everybody. Some people have this option because it's their only option. Some people choose this option because they're driving an environmental agenda or a sustainable agenda or a conservation agenda on their own private property or otherwise. So not exclusively lifestyle, yeah. because I think that those sort of philosophies sort of cross over particular lifestyle boundaries. The Bambaloo has turned out to be quite a great product in, in the way that it's almost disturbing because I have to make them and it takes up a lot of time. <laughs> well, I was going to ask that because it, it looked like it was laminated because you've got the strips yes. of light and dark wood. So are you producing them in the workshop in Henderson? Yes, definitely handcrafted. I'm not always getting inquiries from overseas, particularly US. It's hard to sell this particular product globally because it's not a flat pack. Yeah. It is wood, which can create problems at customs. And given that the generic box size is just within the courier dimensions, you try find a cheap DHL to that maximum size to the United States. The appeal of the toilet is quite global right now. People have been pillaging the image of it itself to put it on their websites as a primary representation of waterless toilet. Well, that's cool. It is cool, but I just can't go global with it. You know what I mean? Nor would I want to because it is handcrafted. When you're dealing with the global crisis for toilet shortages, there's got to be a better way than this, what is essentially a very petite solution. Yeah. But it, it is a disturbing product because it does chew up a lot of my time. But I love the fact that people love it. I love the fact that as far as all the composting toilets goes, in terms of problems, there's next to none. We've refined our manual and guidelines to the uses of a bucket system to make it a little bit more convenient. Joseph Jenkins, who's an author of Human Hammer book, really pioneered a lot of the concepts and advocated for bucket systems. But his system is very logical, very concise for a rural lifestyler that has the resource to operate as how he prescribed to operate a bucket system. But then we sort of just modernized it for conveniences uh, without taking away from the effectiveness of it, simply by introducing compostable wind liners to the bucket so that it sort of maintains a more sanitary bucket. Rather than having multiple buckets, you just use one. And then we use the secondary composting facility, which is really just an outside composting bin of a specific design. That's where the volume for the compost is placed. And then we sort of created a higher degree of customer satisfaction because of those small changes. The one I saw was a a really attractive looking unit and there was no smell. If anything, it it had a slightly cocoa-y smell because Michelle was using wood shavings and cocoa husks, I think. That's an interesting point in itself. Having the right knowledge will make a world of difference when it comes to using a composting toilet to have a success story and a failure story, you know. If we could talk through the mechanics of actually how you set it up and use it. Sure. Well, there's two parts. Clearly, with a normal flushing toilet, you've got a one homogenous ceramic toilet, whereas with the bamboo, you have an outer housing and then you've got a bucket inside. 
the bucket is keyed to the lid, which you're able to lift up and down to access that bucket. And on top of that lid is mounted the seats. Basically, you're using the bucket system within a week. So it'd be one to two people, which is our typical recommendation. Anything more than that means that the system fills up too quickly and becomes too inconvenient. So we sort of tend to advocate that there is a one bucket per two people. If there's more than two people, maybe go with two bamboo setups inside the dwelling. But ultimately, within that week, you're basically using it, number ones, number twos. It's an all-in-one composting solution, so you're not having to divert the urine. There's a lot of people asking us for urine diversion. Quite often, there's a novelty to their understanding of composting toilets, and so they're asking because there's a little bit of popularity behind urine diversion options on the market. Yeah. And, and urine diversion is fine if you know why it's there. The argument is that when you combine poos and peas, it smells, and that's correct in a pit latrine sort of scenario. But when you've got the addition of a high degree of cover material, bulking agents, as we call them, which is wood shavings and various other things, you're creating an aerobic condition. It's quite different from that anaerobics you'll find with poos and peas combined. So it sort of polarizes that whole argument. So yes, it's an all-in-one system, but you're putting cover material on it and you're putting a good handful per pea. So we just basically create a guideline of saying one handful for number ones, two handfuls for number twos. As far as the carbon to nitrogen ratio is that it's the opposite way around from a practical point of view. Two large handfuls of wood shavings or otherwise over the number twos creates good cover material so that you get less odor or reducing risk of insects. That's basically how you use it from a day-to-day point of view. And at the end of a seven-day period, which would be for one individual, you basically finish filling it up, tie the bag in a knot, put the screw lid on the bucket, carry it out to the compost safely because it's got a nice screw lid. I'm going to spill it and pour it out, tip it out, and then start again by putting a bag in there, filling it up with a little bit of wood shavings in the base, and you're good to go. That front end is really simple to use then, and that was my impression when I saw the one in Michelle's caravan, that it was just a really clean and neat-looking unit. People have a bit of a phobia about dealing with number ones and twos, but there wasn't any of that because you don't actually see it. That's correct, yes. And the material is very absorbent in itself. In fact, we're actually encouraging people to use a wet cover material under the premise that the water in itself absorbs odour yeah. as well as it's weighty. So it tends to tamper down all that toilet tissue. Well, that was my next question, Dylan. You put the toilet paper down into the bucket as well. Yes, everything but sanitaries. Anybody living rurally knows that omnipus puts sanitaries into a biocycle system, septic system, one way or another, because they always clog up the mechanisms. If only people in town knew that as well, honestly. I'd... Yeah, well, the councils design their waste treatment plants for the screening technology, but I don't know to what degree of complications they're actually having. I'm sure that you'll discover that in your research, yeah. I interviewed Daryl Veal at Christchurch City Council. He's the main environmental scientist in charge of their wastewater facility. Right. And he said it's just a constant battle, sanitary products and wet wipes constant battle oh really yeah wow so the wet wipes isn't they're not compostable or i'm sorry they're not rated for going down the sewer or they are no they're a knitted mesh so they don't dissolve oh i see even if they say they dissolve they don't dissolve yeah I actually interviewed Billy Joe Hohepper a couple of weeks ago from a company called B-Day. She's made a spray foam right. that you put on toilet paper and it turns the toilet paper into a, a really luxurious wet wipe substitute. I'd love to promote her product. I'd love to promote anything like that, really. Well, one of the strengths of the podcast has been I've hooked people up like this. Yeah. Her product would sit really well next to Bambulu, I'm sure. Yeah. She's only up the road from you as well, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I'll seek her out and we'll put her on the FAQ pages and stuff like that. I pull out the FAQs with advice, you know, where to buy what and what toilet tissue to use and composting systems because they often ask, you know, stuff like that. So, Well, I was impressed. And if we ever had a lifestyle block or we built a tiny home and needed to put in a, a non-flushing unit, I would definitely look at the bamboo loo because, as I said, aesthetically, it was really attractive. It just looked good. And I imagine it's really comfortable to use. It's a proper full-size throne, isn't it? Yeah, the seat is a little bit smaller. So normally seats are a little bit more oval, a bit more longer. Yeah. So this is a 16-inch seat, and they're normally about 17, 18, 19, depending on the, the size of the actual throne. So it's a little bit shorter, the seat itself, but that's purely because from a bucket design being purely round, we tried to match the shape of the seat to the bucket. Otherwise, you'd get potential for accidents. Yeah. Otherwise, we need an elliptical bucket, an oval bucket. But it's pretty much standard toilet seat height. It's got the same footprint on the floor as a in-wall cistern-designed flushing toilet. You know, the sort of European-style back wall where the cistern's hidden in the wall structures. So it doesn't stick out too much, which makes it sort of applicable for fitting into a lot of tight situations. The tiny house manufacturers seem to love them. They sometimes give them out as complementary toilets built into the package or otherwise optionize them for the customers. 
and they always make a great showpiece when they go to the actual tiny house shows. So they, they like them. But the bucket system in itself, just so everybody knows, it's not compliant to the waterless composting toilet standard, particularly for an on-floor system, being that there's nothing below the floor. The waterless composting toilet standard does demand, as well as anything that goes in a residential dwelling, if it's involved in foul water as they've defined it, it must be vented. So in a ceramic toilet where you've got an S-pan, P-pan, it's got a water plug in it. So they're not worried about foul odour coming back up the system. In a composting toilet, there's no trap or otherwise. So they've got to be vented. Passively or actively, ideally actively, which is to say use a fan to drive that air one direction. And that makes them very odourless. And in consequence, they're actually more odourless on a day-to-day use than a flushing toilet because they're drawing air from the room. I've seen a thing called a sog system on a motorhome, which is a, a venting fan, isn't it? Yes. That has a lot to do with managing the odour from the fermentive process inside the blackwater tank. So if they've got an all-in-one tank, grey water, black water, and so on, they're trying to off-gas that in a way that is not going to create an ill experience around... Unpleasant smell in the van. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so some of the concept, residential dwellings uh, and or otherwise uh, commercial, whatever, they need that ventilation, and that's mandated in the composting toilet standards. Standards, obviously things that regulate the industry to maintain a minimum quality control of whatever. And obviously, when you're in proximity to the waste, there is a requirement for chamber screens or a mechanism that separates the user from the solid matter. And in the bamboo, we don't have that. There's not a lot of room to actually introduce one. The other aspect is that there needs to be an excess moisture drain. Leachate would be the word for it. And so once those three criteria are met, you can say that it meets the standards you can also get it appraised or certified. And that's really for the building industry. When it comes to the RV market, there is no specific definition for what the toilet is versus the containment capacity. And they do need to be vented in a positive way, but they're not focused on the same regulatory standard as it would be with a residential dwelling. Containment is the key thing in the RV application. So the bandaloo could be said to work within that capacity, but each RV will require its own unique certification. So therefore, we often get asked, is the product, like we've got some other RV toilet options there, but is the product certified for RVs? And there isn't really a uh, certification for the toilet. You could get an appraisal. Yeah, there's a self-containment standard, but it's not about the actual design. It's about capacity more than anything else. Correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm very pleased with the Bambaloo as far as a product in the market. And I've got every... Uh, agenda to develop a second version of it. Well, potentially two other versions going in both two directions. One, obviously, slightly more expensive, much more feature-rich, and the other one is much more affordable, kind of along the lines of flat pack, but still to a very high quality standard. There's some people in the market making some sorts of flat pack products, which are not what I would say to the, the standard that I'd like to see. If it comes down to the price range of what a DIYer is doing it, I'd leave it up to the DIYer to do it. From a business point of view, there's no point in me dabbling in that particular market. If someone wants to construct a box out of MDF, they're going to construct a box out of MDF. Well, exactly. And that's a skill level that most people can do. Yeah. And I would encourage that if that's where their financial capacity lies. Because I've often had people say, oh, it's expensive. And it's like, well... That's like anything, you know, that's well-crafted and tailored to appeal to a certain audience. And I'll keep stressing that. Aesthetically, it was really pretty to look at. It was very well-constructed, superbly finished, really was. Congratulations on achieving that. Oh, well, thank you for that. It's a strange way people ask me, like, is it all made of bamboo? Because it's a composite of both bamboo materials, veneers, and New Zealand pine. And it's sort of like, well, we can't actually get bamboo to go around in circles. Part of it's aesthetic and, and the other part of it is just a, a bit of a backstory about the material choices, And but everybody's pleased. Well, construction-wise, I imagine that, that it's a real skill. It's not the sort of thing you could get somebody in on 20 bucks an hour and set them to building those immediately. Yes, you're absolutely right. There is a little bit of skill, but I believe that with the right training, everybody can do it. I think the attentiveness would be something. I mean, I'd love to have somebody working hard to fabricate them. There seems to be enough demand that that can be put into place. But it is a case of saying, well, it comes from the background of knowing how to play around with wood. And, and, and it's co-developed it with my father originally. He's an old builder. And we just sort of created shapes that looked really great and had that ergonomic contour, a little twist and all the rest. Knowing how to work with ply, because he used to do that. 
So is everyone slightly unique then, Dylan? Oh, yes, 100%, because each bow's got a little bit of deformation in it, and the skill is really trying to sort of flare it all together so that it, they all look somewhat uniform. But I would say categorically, everyone's got a little wee scratch here or there or whatever, you know. They've got their own nooks and crannies, as one might say, so yeah. I mean, that just enhances the appeal to me, that they're all a little bit different, and you know that if you buy one, nobody else has got exactly the same as you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. When you're handcrafting things, you can't say it's a failure of manufacture. It's an expectation of manufacture, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> Natural products and <laughs> Whereas stuff. if it's coming out of a stamping press and something looks different, well, then that's a failure in manufacturing, isn't it? Yeah. Can we talk about the back-end process? Because I mentioned in the email that I understood that the bamboo loo was just the front end of a more complicated composting process. Yeah. Have you got time just to talk through when you've bagged your waste, it goes onto the compost pile. What are the best recommendations and how long does it take and what can people do with the compost once it's all broken down? Sure, 100%. We tend to refer to it as a composting solution, not a system. And the system has got to do with how well you set up your site to accommodate the whole process. And so the whole process is not going to be achieved within the bamboo receptacle itself. And I think we can call it a functional receptacle because it's going to receive the waste for a short period of time, contain it, manage it, and then we're going to bag it and then put it out into the outside composting bins. I refer to them as secondary composting treatment systems, which is kind of a very flash word to describe a composting bin, but I'm trying to make it very specific that that's what their application is. And generally, we're not encouraging people to put food scraps in these outside composting bins. They can introduce other green waste matter, such as lawn crippings, but nothing that will attract vermin, rodents, or otherwise. Obviously, weekly, they're taking a, a lot out to that bin. Those bins, we encourage that they're set up on the section in accordance to the typical land application rules, where in which a composting bin that's not up against your neighbor's boundary line, you want it two meters set back. If you're going on a downhill gradient because of the potential for the leaching of the compost, into the soil to travel through the soil, the downhill gradient and setbacks would be greater again. So those sorts of logics need to be employed for setting up the official composting area, if you would. And the type of bins we encourage that are used are typical round ones directly in contact with the soil, not rotational bins, because any bin that has those mechanisms or the leach aid itself is not directly connected with the soil, you've got a risk of it draining out or leaking out in some way or another. So we're actually encouraging the cheapest bins on the market rather than the $300 bin. And that's because really what we're after is volume. So you're going to need a primary of two bins per person. So four bins in total for two people, basically. It may differ depending on the individual, the climate factors such as that, but they can stack and increase the volume of bins that they have on site as they go along. These standard round bins, open base, round lid, you can put a little lock on them if you want to sort of increase the safety features surrounding that bin, but generally there's no real major panic to achieve that. Children are often the, one of the primary concerns when it comes to regulatory authorities with regards to wastewater technology because they like to play around. Yeah. So you're just trying to reduce that risk to contact. The Bambaloo takes advantage of these compostable bags, uh, and they are truly compostable bags. People ask me the specifics of what they're made from. They're kind of made of cornstarch and other polymers, but it's all organic in its origins and will break down. It tends to be a bit slow depending on the climate. The bags we tend to promote are very tough and durable bags, but what they prefer is a, quite a warm compost. And this generic compost outside won't necessarily achieve a great deal of heat. So it's important that those composting bins are in a sunny location. But regardless of the fact that the bag's slow to break down, it will break down eventually. So there's no environmental impact. The beauty of the bag in the compostable bin is that they're tied off, all the waste is tied off inside the bag, and there's no risk of that bag breaking apart in, in two or three months, and therefore the initial stages of composting will take place, sanitation will be placed to various different degrees, and thus reduce the risk of insects getting into that compost bin. People would often ask, you know, well, what about the premise that it's aerobic? Well, there is an atmosphere inside the bag in its own right, and you've got to bear in mind that not all composting bacteria are exclusively dependent on oxygen. In fact, some of the types of bacteria that grow in compost are sensitive to oxygen, where in which the oxygen itself can burn. So it sort of works well for that initial stages of composting, and eventually those bags will start to disintegrate and break apart, and the whole mass will start to sort of passively be mixed together. Creating the right conditions is important for composting. 
anybody who's a lifestyler and a gardener will know that they can either have a successful compost or, or not a successful compost, and there's some specific conditions to achieve that. So what we find is that when people are learning how to compost, whether it be garden waste or human waste, there's always a bit of a learning curve, and we're trying to fill in that gap by giving them some fundamental yet simple directions from word go. That way they've got a higher success rate with the use of whether it be bucket systems or any other compost system. That's sort of part of the system that we're dealing with. That the, the ideal is that those composting bins are filled up. Once they're completely full, you close them down, mark them for a one-year duration of retention. That is a requirement in the waterless composting toilet standards, so we like to stick to that rule. particularly like to stick to one year of maturation when you're in a highly seasonal environment. So whereas if we're in the tropics, you don't tend to have too much variation in the seasons going from a winter-like condition to a summer-like condition. In New Zealand, we prefer to see that they're retained for one year, ideally even two years. Sanitation will take place in a relatively quick fashion when it comes to composting, but in terms of what we call maturation of the compost, which is to say to return it to a soil-like consistency, you know, it can take quite a few years for that to be fully achieved. And it's not explicitly because the human waste itself is taking too long to break down, but it's the other organic matter that will take time to break down, even though we're using it as our carbon to nitrogen feedstock for the bacteria, things like the wood shavings will have more or less a certain speed to break down. So once it has all broken down, I'm imagining you get a lovely, rich, dark, loam-type substance. Compost comes out the bottom of the bin eventually. Eventually, yes. And can you use that for any horticultural purpose, or does that need to go somewhere else as well? I think the reality is our regulatory authorities would have encouraged it, and I kind of agree. The permaculturalists would be tearing their hair out of me because really when it comes to sort of closing the loop, the nutritional cycle, that is a fundamental argument that you'll see come up time and time again. Yeah. The reason why we would oppose the use of this human waste compost in food crops is not because people can't do it well and that it won't reintroduce the nutrients to the food cycle, but it's because of the lowest common denominator theory. If somebody failed to do it correctly, then it spoils it for everybody else, right? Yeah, absolutely. We live in an economy and a society that insurance and assurance are necessary for people to feel comfortable about living. We don't accept risk like other countries would, where risk is apparent on a day-to-day basis. We're very risk-averse. So I think that that's the scope. Well, Dylan, you, you even see that with grey water in caravans, that it's against the Resource Management Act to dump your grey water on the ground, yes. even though if all you've done is had a shower and used natural soaps, there's very, very little danger. But the lowest common denominator is that somebody will mix their grey water with their black water and you can't afford that level of risk. That That's the thinking, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. See, in Australia, they've got a grey water standard. Well, not a standard. They've got a, uh, what's the word? It's not a bylaw. What is it? It's an addition to a standard, which is their plumbing standard, right? For a device, which is a grey water diversion device. In the Australasian region, there's no other grey water standards whatsoever. There's plumbing water that talks about grey water, I suppose. But there's no standard for the treatment of grey water or otherwise the discharge or dispersal of grey water in a safe and successful way. It's never been developed. It's counterproductive to the industry's interests, which is ultimately to sell all-in-one systems. All-in-one systems classically do make a lot of sense in some ways. If you've got the available water and you've got the available land to safely design a land application system and discharge and not have an environmental impact, then that great. That's why we see also differences between the quality of the on-site wastewater system going from a septic to a full-on biocycle of various different qualities and controls. Standards come about because of a few different mechanisms. The waterless composting toilet standard came about because there were some willing contributors, and that did or didn't involve industry professionals. And the same thing could be said for grey water. There may be some activity going towards creating grey water standard, but there doesn't seem to be from what I can tell. It would be good to see something in that direction, but then what you find is standards are often written in contribution by these industry professionals that work for companies that would like to see their preference of their design as implemented in the standards, therefore it's an easier path to market. So it was always nice to get sort of outside industry professionals to come into the country where they're not stakeholders in the industry to write standards, but that doesn't always happen because you've got to pull upon your resources. And realistically, a lot of industry professionals, and I'm not talking about politicians, I'm talking about real engineers, trained expertise that do run and work for these companies. 
they are truly qualified to write these standards, to compose these standards. But then you see so much biases come out of that at the same time. Yeah. In order to successfully write a standard, you've got to have a, a moderator <laughs> for a group. You've actually led me into one of my other questions there, which was I'm blown away by just your level of in-depth knowledge and technical understanding, Dylan. That comes through on your website. It's come through with listening to you talk now. How on earth did you become such a guru in this space? I have no idea. (laughs) Did you go to college and study wastewater or is it just evolved? No, I, I just learn. Well, honestly. I think life is learning, really. Everybody has every access to information, more so than ever before. I mean, we, we used to prize the library, and we've got so much resource out there, although a lot of this online premise of resource can be convoluted with biases, you know what I mean? But who's to say that a book in the library was never written in any particular biased way? But, you know, if you're passionate and you sort of just want to learn things, everybody's got a different personality type. For me, I can't go into a social situation and hold a conversation about rugby or jovial things. And yet a lot of people, you know, it's sort of like that's the illustrious reality of for themselves. You know, they, they work hard all week and then they go out and hang out with their mates and they speak and act jovially and, and that's great for them. But not for me. I, I get merely bored and it's not a biases towards these people. It's just I, I sit down and listen to philosophical podcasts all the time. The good thing about doing the show is that I'm really passionate about sanitation. And and that started because my mum and dad bought a property in the 80s, which had a septic tank, and it didn't really work because we had heavy clay. And I just learned all that I could learn about making that system work alongside the old man. And it started from there. Yes. And I've met so many people through the podcast who've got a similar passion for the industry and they're really enthusiastic and their level of understanding and knowledge has blown me away time and time again yes and i think it's really normal because that's the world that i've chosen to immerse myself in that's right no that's completely true i listened to a guy called jordan peterson and he sort of points out the difference between what is a creative and what is in a creative personality and this finite balance between being creative and being able to balance that with a practical real world application and I would say that I am a creative individual and I've had to create my own niche in life. I was a builder for a period and that was fine and dandy as I was mainly doing renovations, particularly in bathroom renovation. I always had a passion for bathrooms. There's this big philosophical thing that came into my head about the understanding of sanitation and what that meant in terms of the well-being of society. Yeah. And sort of that bleeds into this composting toilet business. But also the fact that, you know, going onto construction sites where there's a lot of repetitive work and to me that turned out to be monotony. Being creative, but also being able to express that is great, although there's a lot of monotony in business in its own right. But ultimately, what I find quite rewarding is not the supposed money that comes about by being an owner of a business, but finding situations where my knowledge, my resources, and and my creativity has been expressed and been successful. And that's actually a feedback that I get from certain customers and I'm not, I'm not one for flattering. I don't like flattering. It actually annoys me. For your bamboo, it's well-deserved. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, you're being really modest. I'd encourage listeners to check out your website and look at some of the pictures in your gallery. And I think they'll be quite surprised just how sophisticated a unit it is, to be honest. For something that's incredibly simple, you, you said at the start, it's a really simple system. It is. So it's the ninth edition. It's, it's been refined over the years. So it's gone to sort of the best of that particular format for the most part. But, you know, the great thing about the Bambaloo is that because it's such a, a great aesthetic, it made the whole concept susceptible. And that means that there's some potential of bringing composting toilets back into the family home. Into the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I could say, oh, it's deplorable that people operate on an aesthetic level. That's like saying I'm only going to go out with the most prettiest girl in the world. But we need a bit of personality behind people to make them wholesome. Yeah, There needs to be content to this aesthetic of what it is. And I think that the fact that the bucket system principle proves itself, even though it's classically considered a little bit high maintenance, that's great as well. I support technology. I love technology. I don't want to be enslaved to technology in the future, by the way. But um, I think that the concepts of technology have their application. And this is why you don't typically find me going, oh, I hate biocycle systems, or I hate septic systems. I don't think like that. I love septic systems. I love biocycles. I love municipal plants. I love all the technology where in which they're put into the correct application. What I don't like is when engineers are driven from a sales point of view and they lose their intellectual premise. 
I want to see composting toilets back in the marketplace in a way that they're not necessarily a household brand or anything like that, but definitely something that we're reasonably aware of. And we know that we can use this for a range of application. If you have a rural lifestyle property, you've got yourself a beautiful biocycle system. It's working well. You've got your maintenance contractor on top of it. It's providing clean water that's been discharged to the environment and it's safe and everything. And yet you sort of potentially run short of water come summertime. Or you've got a guest house or you just want an emergency toilet. That's where the waterless toilets really serve some function, you know. I've got two questions that come out of that. The first is for the RVers who maybe, like us, are travelling around, what would we do with a bag of bamboo waste if we've not got a permanent site with a composter on board? Yeah, so that is a legitimate question. It's a real issue in its own right, but not unmanageable. So the fact of the matter is, is that you can contain the waste on the vessel for a period of time until you find that location to dispose of it, whether it be an agreeable friend's property where they've got some composting facility uh, or otherwise your private property after your duration of holiday. And you can contain it for quite a while, but it just depends on the nature of your RV. So if you're on a Toyota Hi-S, for instance, you've got no spare room to contain anything. Yeah, you struggle. Yeah, yeah. So so just keep that in mind. That's where the little portaloo, although a reasonably sizable portaloo, because I know that the, the people who are involved in rewriting the RV standard are probably going to change the regulations in that direction because of some negligence that has existed. So you've got to judge for yourself whether or not a chemical toilet is a suitable solution or otherwise a composting toilet might be a viable solution as well. Bambaloo is not something that I would always encourage in RVs because we do have another RV solution, which is the uh, Summer GTG that's got a urine bottle involved in it. And that means with the urine bottle, if you have one bottle or some extra bottles, uh, you're able to contain that waste and discharge that urine. And then the solid matter chamber will take a lot longer to fill up. This is where urine diversion really comes into its own. So when you're separating them, you can manage them in two different ways. Whereas with the bamboo, it's all in one. So that one chamber is going to fill up more quicker because we are using a lot more bulking agent. You know, let's say you go pee five times a day, number twos once a day. So you're adding a bulking agent on the bamboo each time you're doing that for the RV application. Whereas the same RGG, you're not adding it five times out of the six. Because of urine diversion. And just so listeners understand that urine diversion, you have a separate funnel or a spout and it diverts the pee to a separate chamber to the number twos which go into the primary chamber correct the urinal part is the front half of the toilet and the number two chamber is at the back half basically so with the bottles uh, i think that some rgtg has an eight liter bottle which complies with a three day standard for two people i think it is two or three people i'd have to double check but it's a 1.2 liters per person per day yeah they may increase that to 1.5 because 1.2 is on the modest side of how much you would pee but it's on the premise that you're traveling and you're using public toilets so i don't know what's going to happen with the rv standard in that direction i don't necessarily disagree with them increasing the liquid containment standard we could sort of like make the argument because we have a solids chamber that's part of our liquid containment but I don't want to really sort of fudge the line and create talk stories to justify its compliance. I think it's the largest urine bottle on the market compared to some of the competitors. But at the same time, all those toilets on the market, as far as I'm concerned, they're all made with good quality for that specific application. I don't want to see these urine bottle diversion systems in residential homes. I like to make sure that everybody's buying the correct composting toilet for the specific application, you know. That makes a lot of sense. Mm, 100%. So, yeah, obviously with your own bottle, you can go and dump that into the dump stations at leisure, and that works out very functional. You can also contain those urine bottles. If you've got three of them in rotation, you contain them in a locker as well. With urine containment, the big thing is to keep it concentrated. If you dilute it, it'll ferment rapidly, and that generates a lot of odour. And if you're containing your own bottles, you want to store them in a vented locker, not inside the actual uh, RV itself. This sort of setup with something like a GTG would suit the more bigger RVs. Uh, and the solids themselves, believe it or not, if you well wrap them up, obviously you've got compostable bin liners for the urine diversion toilet like the GTG, but those compostable bin liners will break down. They're fine for dumping into your home composting bin, but you can dump your solid waste into the garbage because it is legal. You're allowed to put nappies and pooey-like substance in there, right? But I would recommend if you do do that as a practice, you double bag it in a, a much more resilient bag or at least two bags of compostable bags because you don't want it to break apart. Most councils for New Zealand are using roadside wheelie bins 
which have sort of reduced the risk of, you know, rodents or dogs, cats, whatever, getting into them, which is great. So you can do that with your solid matter. So it can just go into the local refuse bin or your household refuse bin, but you recommend it's double bagged. But private. I wouldn't encourage that you go and find anybody else's bin or a public dump station or anything like that. Always private because it's sort of, you know, so at least your friends, you know, at least an agreeable premise. That would be the big thing. Doggy bags are a big thing now. That Everywhere we've been around New Zealand, there tends to be a green pole at the side of the domain with doggy bags in the bottom. And, and they're the starch, cornstarch bags, they biodegrade, but they just go into the waste. They just go into the refuse bin, don't they? That's right. But I think it's important for people to realise when it comes to diseases, you're not as likely to contract something from your pet. And human waste is known to carry pathogens, isn't it? Correct, yeah. So that, that would be the big concern, I suppose. Yes, yes. My golden rule for working with portable toilets is I don't want to wear it and I don't want to eat it. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that the composting toilet would be the same, that if you've not got a primary site to be able to store your compost, you need to find an alternative solution. And what I'm getting from you is the street bin is not the answer. It's an option because it is legal and the authorities that have the roadside collection, they're all trained professionals. They all have health and safety regulations because whether there be human waste in there or any other form of decaying matter, you know, there's disease through and through. But I'm not outright encouraging that. I would say it's the last option. I would encourage other paths to decomposition, of course. My next question was just an observation really about the fact that something has to change in the way we managed wastewater or toilet products, let's call it toilet products, in that we're seeing in New Zealand beaches being closed because effluent has been spilled into the waterways. The UK, Fergal Sharkey, the musician Fergal Sharkey from the Undertones back in the day, he's running a huge campaign on Instagram and Twitter where he's calling out wastewater companies for dumping raw effluent into rivers, that this is happening more and more and more. Chelsea Wald made the point really well. The gold standard of a plumbed sewer is not the answer for 90% of the world. It's just not. And where we've got those gold standard sewers, they're starting to fail because they're over 100 years old. Depending on what we're doing with our taxation, our spending, our infrastructure, I think that our Western economies are getting more and more thin in the budget because we've got much more social welfare going out there. And I, I don't absolutely agree with that. I believe we need social welfare in a, in, a, in a healthy and sane society because just as if I saw somebody in serious need, I would help them as a natural human condition. So I think that our government is right to have a social net of sorts, but it's become kind of encouraged and it's become too prevalent and we've wasted a lot of money where we could have been looking at that infrastructure correctly. And you're right in the way that centralised systems, my understanding would be, kept central. Trying to connect rural properties to central systems have become a little bit of a mandate, a little bit of an agenda with regards to councils. There's been certain technologies brought into the market, which is pump stations, as opposed to on-site waste treatment systems, where they're able to, at a very remote line, connect to a sewer. It's a pressure pump station, right? So they're pumping into a pressurized line and then bring it in. So there's that's a lot of technology to achieve that whole agenda to centralise. That's happened all over Christchurch post-earthquake, that there's now a, a network of pump stations. And if you build a property in many areas in Christchurch now, you have to have a pump system in your backyard to connect you to the sewer. The one area where it really surprised me was we drove from Tiana to Manapuri, which is about 30 kilometres, I think, from memory. And all along the highway there, which is as remote as you get, it's way down in Southland on the West Coast, really far from any proper civilization. But every three or 400 yards was another pump station and they've put in a sewered main. Pretty expensive. Huge cost. And, and I couldn't work out what was going on. I thought, you know, what, what am I seeing here? And it was only when we got to Manipuri and my friend Colin explained, oh, no, that's the main sewer. Well, what a cost that that would have been. That's huge. And the ongoing implications are quite severe as well. So there's a few things that we've got to look at when we come to implementing public infrastructure is, you know, well, where does the funds to come to sustain it? How long will it last? And what is the knowledge base? That's the other issue that we have to seriously concern ourselves with. For instance, let's say there was a bridge that was built and it was built in a, with a particular technology. And then that whole freaking generation that built it, that knows how to maintain it, is now dead. So it's hard to say what is or isn't a 100-year infrastructure. You know, And I, I would say that from a regulatory point of view, if I was implementing sewer systems, I would want to know that the spec is at minimum 100 from an investment point of view, considering the cost outlay, 
But then how does one maintain the intellectual premise of how to actually service and take care of that technology? And obviously what's happening in the marketplace is that because we're such a fast developing, you know, globalization and rapid boom in technology meant that we're looking at sirline systems that are exceeding themselves from a design point of view within 20 or 30 years. So it's not just a case of saying, well, okay, how do we sustain the stuff that we put in 30 years ago? The attitude tends to be, well, why don't we put in the new technology? Better, faster, you know? We're stuck in a realm of consumerism, not just from the day-to-day products that we buy as you know, residents, but but also, you know, the government themselves are sort of running some risk of buying into that latest technology concept. I haven't spoken to all them, otherwise met everybody in terms of all the regulatory authorities, not at all. But I get the impression that there is a belief that this is the particular path we should take, centralization. And I, I don't know whether that they're willing to explore the alternatives that well. For my money, we've got to do something because the current models aren't just aren't sustainable, not economically and not environmentally. But that would be a huge debate that we, we might have another time. Oh, it's a big one. It's a big one. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or share before we close up? I don't know. Just just people to be open-minded about their choices. I'm not forcing anything down anybody's throat, but if you take the time to look at things and speak to other people who've either used composting toilets, um, you'll find that it's not as bad as the sort of cultural stigma that exists out there. It's something I contend with on a day-to-day basis. When people call out, they ask me some very primary things. Does it smell? You know, and that's a big one. And I'm like, well... You know, as a, as a premise of what we do, we don't want to sell anything that smells. It's definitely not something that we want to promote or encourage or have as a, a type of product. Do you know, I get that reaction to the, the portable restroom thing as well. That Oh, I don't use them because they smell. Well, my experience of, of your bamboo, Lou, that, that I saw was it didn't smell. It was actually really pleasant. And I would have been quite happy to use it, you know? Yes, yeah. So it's, 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 there's a logic issue, but I think we, we're so culturalized that we ask these things because that's what our, our mind is trained to think. Yeah. But if we work with our own logic and thought it through, so we'd ask the fundamental question, a flushing toilet, a ceramic toilet, does it smell? Well, from a sort of mains connection point of view, there's no risk of foul odor coming back up the system, right? Yeah, or it flushes, it's gone. But from a day-to-day point of view, why do we have a regulation that a toilet room has to have a window? It's for fresh air. Yeah. Well, you don't have to have a window on a toilet room for a composting toilet at all. You do for them from a standards point of view because they can't, the, the regulatory authorities can't get their head around it. Why don't you want a window? But from the fact that the toilet has a fan that's humming away 24-7, if you want a bit of redundancy, you put a wind-driven vent on top of it just as a passive backup, right? And then you've got a very much an odorless room, you know what I mean? You can eat as much baked beans as you like. So once you exercise a little bit of logic, you can actually answer a lot of your own questions about what this technology is. But otherwise, I'm more than happy to talk to everybody about it. Oh, that's really cool. I've been courting the people at home biogas, and I'd love them to come and talk about their system that generates methane. Is this the one from Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah. I've done research into it myself. I don't oppose biogas or ethanol, as it would be, but we have to be really pragmatic about what they're promoting. We're quite cold in New Zealand. If you're in a very warm environment, it'd work out wonderfully. Yeah. But the heat is a big factor. That ties in with the feedback that I've seen. People have posted their comments that I've set the system up, I'm not getting any gas. And I'm guessing it's temperature dependent to generate the methane. It is. It is. And I, 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 I really hold companies accountable. I think it's a bit negligent on their behalf to sort of say, yay, look at this. Look, we've got a little micro flush toilet connected to this. Here's your solution. Even myself, I make it very clear to customers, Bambaloo, by an example, doesn't meet the water standard. You're legally liable for that if you're operating with a Bambaloo on a private residence. Yeah. That's that's the legal liability. You're not compliant, basically. And when you've got something like biogas, I'm not saying they're a bad company, but they've been a little bit irresponsible when they're going out there globally and setting up social media and just marketing and trying to sell to the world. They've got to appreciate local regulatory standards for risky systems like on-site wastewater. You know what I mean? And they should do a little bit more research into that and then start to specify correctly. I'd love them to come on the show and just explain what the system is and how it works. As a concept, it just struck me if it worked, it was a real clever one. It's a great redundancy if you can have that technology and you could operate within it within summertime periods. So it's kind of like brings into this the argument resilience. That's what I could say positively about it. I had all sorts of other questions around the fact that you've got this great big bag of methane sitting on the edge of your property and boom. I think we've got an old standard in New Zealand for methane generation with like a bowel methane device, but they're very expensive. 
But you're right. There, there is a big explosive bag there. Yeah. I don't know whether the risk is particularly high, but with any of these things, wherever there's the minor degree of risk, it's considered equal to a large degree of risk, you know? Please let listeners know how they can find out about your full range of products and the information that you've got. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two websites. One is Bambaloo. That's bambaloo.co.nz. And the other one is Waterless Composting Toilets NZ, uh, which is wctnz.co.nz. It's quite easy to find, yeah. Excellent. I'll put links to those in the notes for the episode as well, Dylan, if that's all right. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and, and I have a funny feeling I'll be back on the phone again if you're amenable to that. I'm sure. I really do want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on Get Flushed and just share the background and the mechanics and all the rest around bamboo loo and, and waterless composting toilets. Oh, I appreciate that, Pete. Thank you for the opportunity. So if this works out to be a bit of publicity, that's great. Keep what I said about the issue of shipping Bambaloo globally in it, because I don't want a thousand emails where I have to like work out how much it costs to deliver, and then they say, oh, it's too expensive. If we air this and all of a sudden you get 50 times the amount of orders that you'd normally get, you'll be cursing me. <laughs> oh, I would. I definitely would. And unfortunately, because it's a bucket system, it, it can't go up in price. You know what I mean? It's limited by the theoretical cost outlay of what people will pay for a bucket. I can't even set up an American distributor because the profit margins and everything are just not even there. There's no discounts, you know, so it's just like I've got to think of a different product if I want to go global. And I'd love to do that as a New Zealand company. Worst case scenario, Dylan, if you get hundreds of orders, give me a ring and I'll jump on a flight when the borders open. And I'll come up and jump on the belt sander. <laughs> you can sort it out. I can hand this project to you. <laughs> just tell me what you want. <laughs> I've really enjoyed your company, brother, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Take care. Cheers, Pete. Catch you later. Bye-bye. As I said at the start, that interview really did tie together many of the themes I wanted to cover this season. And I'd like to thank Dylan for taking time to share his knowledge with me and with you. Please visit his website. I'll put the links in the notes for today's show. But if you do want to order from overseas, please bear in mind what he said about shipping costs. Unfortunately, I can't see that situation improving anytime soon, especially when we learned last week that the US Postal Service is no longer able to handle posts to and from New Zealand. Hopefully things will get back to normal at some point, but nobody seems to know when. Before I close, I'd be really grateful if you could tell family members, colleagues, friends and strangers all about Get Flushed and get them to listen in. The show is available on all of the usual podcast platforms, but there's another player that I'd like to tell you about. That's called Good Pods. You can download that for both Android and iOS, and it's a little bit different from other podcast platforms because it allows you to connect with other listeners and share recommendations. It's free to use, and it has lots of bonus features that you just don't get with the other podcast platforms. That's Good Pods. And if you're looking out for new podcasts to listen to, why not check out Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs, which is run by my friend Lewis Tennant, or Kiwi Talks, that's Talks with a Z, which is run by Reese Riley. Both of those shows feature long-form interviews, but they've had some really interesting guests. Again, I'll put links in the notes for today's shows. That's Verbal Highs and Kiwi Talks. Okay, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate your ears. I've been Pete, and you've been listening to Get Flushed, 